0: Last time we were together, uh, we were at the young adults campout, actually, and uh, you know we talked about God's glory, and it was a great setting to do that. And I understand that shortly after I left, you guys got just a incredible storm, and some of your tents were knocked down, and flooding, and all your sleeping sleeping bags were floating, and all that kind of stuff. So I trust that tonight is going to be a much calmer night. Although, as I thought about it, given some of the topics that we're going to be talking about tonight, it may not actually be the case, so we will see. Uh, we are going to be in Colossians 3, so if you do have your Bibles or app or whatever else you use, please go ahead and open to Colossians 3. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. That's the end of that section, so really the second half of Colossians 3. Um, There are certain messages, you guys, there are certain Bible studies and topics that are really easy to talk about and it's really easy to hear about and to just listen to. This is not one of those topics and this is not one of those nights. As we look at uh, this passage from Colossians 3, um, among other things that we're going to discuss, this passage contains two, at least, Often misunderstood words are kind of on the Christian naughty list. Uh, They're words that are oftentimes taken out of context, most of the time misunderstood and sometimes even used against Christianity. And these two words are submission and slavery, all right? And we're going to be talking about those among other things tonight, but um, Colossians 3, as you probably noticed by now, was broken up into two big chunks, two big sections the first section that you talked about in your last lesson, that whoever taught that, probably Pastor Sam, that section talks all about this internal conduct, this uh, new self that we have. When we first come to Christ, when we first put on Christ, there's this internal change that happens and it affects the way we think, the way we have a perspective about things and the way that we conduct ourselves personally. There's all this internal conduct that happens. The second half of Colossians 3 talks all about this external conduct, more of a relational conduct. And the the context that Paul is talking about, there's tons of different relationships, right? But Paul is talking primarily about relationships within the Christian household and how they relate to each other. And it's so necessary that Colossians is written this way because What we do necessarily flows out of who we are. And so the first section sort of establishes the who we are in Christ. And now this section is how are we conducting ourselves as a component of who we are in Christ. So that's how that is is broken up. So if you work through this passage tonight, I I really want to encourage you to set aside any preconceived um, notions about, These words that we talked about, and to set aside, um, you know, maybe some of these stigmas that we have about these words or these uh, concepts, because there's so much baggage and negative association with these terms. I just want to encourage us to maybe start from a blank slate in some ways and start afresh. But at the end of this lesson, if you have some really big hang ups with the stuff that I talked about, or you really are like, wow, I'm super offended and I just want to battle with someone. Just email me and just let it all out, all right? Don't hold back. My email is SDeloy at highlandcommunitychurch.com. Ask Deloy, just let it all out. Don't hold back. Just give me both barrels, all right? So that's the plan if uh, this does not go well tonight. So I'm going to read Colossians 3. We're going to look at verses 18 to 4.1. I'm going to read the whole thing first. It says, "Wives." So within this section of Colossians 3, we see three pairings of relationship. The three pairings are a husband and a wife, a father and his children, and a slave and his master, a bond servant and his or her master. And the first one that is addressed is in verse 18. It's talking about wives. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now this word submit often conjures up this sort of cringe-worthy sense of this domineering guy in some tank top that pounds his chest and looms over this timid, voiceless wife. But I think we'll notice as we unpack this a little bit and look at this from Scripture that the way that God views this couldn't be further from the truth. It couldn't be further from the truth. The word submit literally means a willingness to subject oneself to. You see, it's not something that's forced upon a wife. It's something that she gladly and joyfully chooses. Why? Why would she do that? Because in our minds, we associate this term, submit, with all sorts of negative baggage. And I've asked you earlier to not do that, but uh, that's what we have kind of done in our minds. That's what we've sort of settled in our minds. But as we look at Scripture, and to help us better understand this whole concept it's important to recognize that whenever this word, submit, is used in scripture, it's always used in a positive sense and not in a negative one. Did you know that? It's used in a positive light, not in negative light. Here's an example. Jesus Christ, fully God, always existed, always will exist, ontologically equal within the Trinitarian relationship with God. It says several times in Scripture that Jesus submitted himself to God the Father. He's fully God, so is God the Father. They're ontologically equal. They've both eternally existed and always will. But Jesus submits himself to the will of the Father. Why? Because of the role of each within the Trinitarian relationship. And the Bible says that Jesus did so willingly and joyfully. We also see uh, Paul in other sections of Scripture, mainly in Ephesians 5, where Paul says, um, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so you see this bilateral, mutual submission, this um, putting our arms around each other, coming um, under each other. And there's, there's this mutual, submissive act within these relationships, as Paul discusses Ephesians 5. And it's not this uh, one sided sense that maybe we've had a bit drilled into our minds. There's a few things that, um, as we unpack this word, I want to help us understand what God's word says about a few of these things because it's so important to this conversation. The first thing is that uh, scripture is replete with the idea that men and women, women and men, are created equal. They are. There is no inequality between men and women. Matthew Henry, which is uh, just a great common commentator on biblical texts, he had said at one point that Eve was created from the rib of man to be equal to him. She wasn't created from his head to, to lord over him. She wasn't created from his feet to be trampled by him. But she was created... From his rib to be equal to him, and underneath his arm to be shielded by him, and close to his heart to be unconditionally loved by him. Now, here he clearly takes some license as a commentator, but the concepts are in Scripture that there's equality between men and women. Both men and women are created in the image of God, and there are countless examples of women in Scripture who are leaders and teachers and influencers. And they had and continued to have an absolutely profound effect on God's work in this world. Profound. And so in this passage in Colossians 3 and its parallel passage in Ephesians 5, it clearly states this this voluntary coming under um, of of the wife coming under the, the husband This willingness is based on a number of assumptions of who the husband is. Remember we talked about that first section of who we are? The assumptions of a wife taking on this role voluntarily and joyfully assumes that the husband is going to conduct himself in a certain way. And that's where we get verse 19. It says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So in this verse, along with many others, it's actually the husband who carries the heavier obligation. In other words, he has more to answer for. He has a higher degree of accountability before the Lord. You'll notice that this verse, what it doesn't say is husbands, love yourself and demand whatever you want from your wives. No, it actually flips the focus on its head. And instead of demanding for myself, it commands husbands to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. So the focus is no longer on the husband and being this sense of domineering, I get what I want. The focus is now, I absolutely am enthralled with this woman that God has blessed me with. How do I love her? How do I serve her in the way that honors him? Ephesians 5, if you look at that parallel text, it goes as far as saying, Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. He died for her. There was nothing that Jesus would not have done for the church, for his people. Nothing. In the same way, there ought to be nothing that husbands are not willing to do for the benefit of their wives. Makes you kind of wonder in some ways which is the more humble role. The one that is voluntarily coming under the leadership of the other or the one that is asked to lay down their lives. Neither one has any domineering effect whatsoever. It has no place in marriage relationships as far as God is concerned. This other uh, sacrificial love, is called an agape love. There's four different kinds of love, but this agape love is very unique because it's not really dependent on the emotional, fluffy side of things. Instead, it's a very conscious, very intentional decision that I'm going to love the other to stick with them and to... to. Um, Extend my love to them no matter what. What the word agape literally means is to keep on loving and to keep on loving and to keep on loving and to keep on loving. loving. It's this imperative that doesn't really stop, it's this continuous action. So, this sense of husbands, love your wives, is not just fulfill whether you feel like loving them at the time, it's an absolute promise that they're to keep. So as we put these together, the, the role of the uh, wife, the role of the husband, um, let's look at just one more real quick verse from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. It's another verse that kind of causes us to kind of cringe a little bit, right? But what does that mean, that weaker vessel? In no sense of any language or interpretation in any way doesn't mean inferior in any way. It really doesn't. It means exactly what it sounds like. Generally speaking, men are stronger physically and hardier than women. That's just how God made us. And I know there's a couple of you out there. It's like, well, I know this like, MMA woman that can like, beat up you know, anybody in the like, I know, Dr. Technical. But generally speaking, men are created... Um, with more muscle mass, denser bones, and even the way that their muscles attach to their body, it's just it, it's just the way they're made. And so, in this context, um, you know, historically, men you know were the ones that went to war or had that really heavy lifting jobs or you know um, the real brutal gladiator you know maybe tackle football kind of sports you know just that depended more on physique. But as we look at this aspect of it from 1 Peter 3, 7, how does a husband show honor to his wife in this way, with, with this reality? It means that he uses his strength to protect her. He uses his strength to help provide for the family. And he uses his strength to make his wife feel like there's nobody I'm safer with than when I'm with you, My husband. And so if you're walking through a dark alley, there's no person I'd rather have by my side than my husband. And he will lay down his life for me if that's what it takes. And that's the kind of love, that's the kind of agape that husbands are called to. And so now we start to get less and less and less of a sense that this is this um, lower position of um, a woman submitting to her husband, but instead she's willingly allowing him to serve her, allowing him to protect her and to love her and to uh, put her first and to make sure that she is you know, taken care of and considered and, and looked after. And that's why Paul uses the word submit and in the next two relationships, he uses the word obey. Paul doesn't say, by intent, wives obey your husbands. It's not what he says. This is a willing coming under of one to another. A couple real quick examples of um, this husband-wife relationship. If there are two pilots who are flying in a small plane together, one of the things that is required before they even start the process of uh, pre-flighting the airplane and getting in and starting to fly is that one or the other has to be determined to be the pilot in command. Now, if they're both certified, either one, you know, has the, the skills and the capabilities and they're able to do that. And the one that is determined to be the pilot in command, they may not even be the best at all of the skills. But both of them are working together to assure that the mission, the flight is is completed in a way that is safe and enjoyable, and people are contributing, both, both um, people in the cockpit are contributing to it. But at the end of the day, if something goes south, the pilot in command is responsible for that flight. He or she is the one that is going to be held accountable for the outcome. And that's how it is in the marriage relationship. And that's This sense of the husband's love his wife, and he protects her and he serves her, and the wife willingly comes under that kind of agape, selfless leadership. This uh, past Thursday, as you probably know, was Thanksgiving, although it seemed like a lot of other days because um, many of us were not fulfilling the plans that we originally had. Um, The way that this works in the relationship with my wife, uh, we were having a discussion about whether we were going to stay in our house with our household and our four boys and just do our Thanksgiving with us or if we were going to join my parents and um, some of my siblings and nieces and join them for Thanksgiving. And, you know, um, don't judge me either way, but I, I was probably a little bit more on the, the bent of, let's just go and, you know, most of my siblings work from home and my parents are retired. It's not a big deal. It's just, you know, go join them. And my wife is a little bit more bent toward, yeah, maybe we should stay and maybe we just, you know, um, not take any chances or whatever the, the case might be. And so what do I, as the loving husband, do? I said, woman! No, I didn't. <laughs> After I got out of the hospital. <laughs> no, I, I, honestly, I recognize the fact that my wife is not totally comfortable in this setting. She probably wouldn't have totally enjoyed herself and I wouldn't have been serving her as well as I could have if I just really insisted on my own way. And so what we actually did do is we stayed home. And she said, you know what? what it, it, I could go either way on this and it's, you know, we talked about it and we, just, we got to share our hearts and we, you know, we discussed that. But at the end of the day, you know, this, even doing this study and preparing for the study is just such a great reminder for me that it's a call for me to die to myself and to serve my wife and to love her unconditionally. And so we stayed home and we had a great time and it was worth it. And, um, and so often, you know, my wife has wisdom that I don't have and I'm just so grateful for her. So, the uh, second set of relationship pairing that we see is between children and parents. This is in verses twenty and twenty one. It says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So in the second relationship set, it shifts now into this obey. Remember this is this obey is not the husband wife relationship. It's not at all uh, describing that. Because obey means that there is a authority head. Over another in a way that um, kind of dictates um, much more clearly, and when children are growing up, I mean, we have to say, "Don't play in the road." That's a mandate, you know, whatever it might be. There is there's there's a definitive authority. There's a, there's a it's, it's a bit more top down. Um, the focus of the command for children to obey their parents is not just focused on. Please your parents. Do good by your parents. Make sure that your parents are happy raising you, so you can be a blessing of a child. Instead, the focus that Paul says here is, do what pleases the Lord in everything. Children, yes, follow your parents, but ultimately, where where it, it should get you is that you are following the Lord in everything. So it's not just about, you know, checking the boxes for your parents and following their rules. It's about allowing them to tend your heart so that your heart is changed into the likeness of Christ and that you end up as young people and young adults and uh, older adults and whoever it might be as as an individual whose heart is captivated by Jesus. Obey your parents in, uh, in everything in honoring the Lord. The the expression of fathers can also be translated to parents. That's that's a fully responsible translation. So some of your um, versions may even say parents, but um, mine says fathers. Um, It says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So uh, this role of parents, fathers, parents, um, Paul is telling all the parents that that they hold tremendous responsibility in modeling this selfless love of Jesus, in pointing their children toward him, and in whatever they're doing to really try their best not to embitter their children, not to, you know, tick them off, essentially. Another way of saying this is parents stop nagging your children. I know some of you in here, most of you are probably thinking, well, I'm not a parent, so I'm just going to check out and you know, look at my phone for a while here. But the fact is, you guys, at some point, many of you, if not most of you, will be a parent. And do you know the best time to start developing your heart into being a parent who is really, really, really good for your kids? Right now. Not after you're changing diapers. Right now. This is the time that God has called you to start developing that heart, to start investing in who God has called you to be so that when you do take on that tremendous responsibility, your heart has been nurtured and and trained and and soaked in God's word and continued to link to the heart of Christ. Embittering uh, children... um, you know, this is the idea that um, parents are really, really hard on their kids. The kids can sometimes feel like they can never do anything right. That it's all about the rules and you better tow the company line. And when this happens and it's sort of devoid of this grace-filled, loving relationship with um, that parent and child, this leads um, to really deep-rooted insecurity in the heart of a child. It leads a child to be really uh, self-critical self-deprecating even in a lot of ways and ultimately it leads them to just rebel and to say, forget that. That made me feel like lousy the entire time that I was growing up. I just want nothing to do with that anymore. The closest picture that a child will have of who God is is the picture that they have of their earthly parents. And How are we modeling that? we were modeling that as just rules, rules, and you know, and you better not, you know, step across this line or else, or or are we doing that in a way that's like, look, I I put boundaries here because I love you and I don't want you to just, you know, fall off these cliffs, but at the same time, I know you're going to kind of push it a little bit. I know you're going to make mistakes. You're going to fall on your face, but I'll be here to help you up and to pray with you and to just help you through that. It's a completely different philosophy, and that's the one that Paul is calling parents to adopt. Um, Paul himself, uh, in, in several occasions, uh, he speaks of some sentiment of imitate me as I imitate Christ. What he's not saying is, look at me all the time, I'm, I'm, I'm always worthy of being copied. No, we're not. Paul says, as I follow Christ, that part of me, I want you to follow that. I think that's what parents ought to be doing too is is doing everything they can to model their life after Christ so that their their children catch that in their own life. There's two quotes I'm going to just share with you real quick. I love these quotes. The first is that um, children have never been very good at listening to their parents but they have never failed to imitate them. Uh, The second, um, I just heard last night from some really close friends of mine It says, uh, I love this, Uh, it says it's not the parent's responsibility to make sure they have godly children, it's a parent's responsibility to make sure their children have godly parents. I love that because once again, it, it takes the critical eye off of the other and it redirects it toward am I modeling what God has called me to as a parent or a parent to be? The third relationship set that we see is between bondservants, slaves, and their masters. In uh, verse 22 to the end, it says, uh, Bondservants obey everything, in everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. I just want to make a couple of comments real quick before we move into the specific roles of the the bondservant and then the the other role is the master. It's important to know that um, as Paul wrote this in Colossians 3, his purpose in writing this was not to make a case for or a case against slavery. That was not his purpose at all in writing this. Paul recognizes that there's already these interpersonal relationships in play in Colossae. In fact, almost a third of the population were servants in some form or the other. And so Paul was simply speaking to the interpersonal workings that already existed in this culture. So this passage is not a um, advocating or a decrying one way or the other. It's speaking to the existing reality that this relationship that was already there. So this Greek word for slave or bondservant is doulos. And this word doulos um, can mean a whole wide spectrum of things uh, in terms of this, this um, word slavery. So the type that when we look at the Bible, like in the Old Testament... And even in the New Testament, we see this word, doulos, slave, bond servant, servant. Uh, the type that the Bible gives instruction about and doesn't really seem to, um, to really condemn is the kind that is much more like an indentured servant or the kind that is much more like, um, like a household uh, servant of some sort. But I can tell you that God despises God is disgusted by, God hates the chattel slavery of the the new world, like the American slave trade, where people were kidnapped from their homes and beaten and died as they crossed the ocean and were were forced into labor against their will and were abused and, and taken advantage of. God despises that. God also despises any and all forms of human trafficking. I think his wrath and his anger burn against that happening in our world today. That's not at all what Paul is talking about in this passage. And we have to know that there is a difference within that term doulos. There is a spectrum and Paul is talking about one side of the spectrum. If you look at some history, a lot of the abolitionists from the American slave trade were Christ followers who wanted to uh, kind of take back the dignity of people and recognize that they're made in God's image. And even today, ministries that um, work to uh, free people from human trafficking are Christ-centered ministries because they know and understand God's view on these things. In the Old Testament, servants, um, these slaves, these bond servants, they had rights. Many of them even voluntarily entered into these agreements. They had a debt to pay. They'd say, I'll work for a certain number of years. After that, you know, my debt will be paid off. Um, Many of them are even considered part of the family or could even have part of the inheritance of their masters. And um, when Paul is writing these verses in Colossians 3, what's interesting is that he's directly addressing the bondservants. So Paul's writing a letter to the church with the assumption that these bondservants are within the membership or within the congregation, the audience of the church. Furthermore, he's assuming that because he's giving them instruction about their work, that they have some discretion on how they work and how they conduct themselves. That's so different than this chattel slavery of the the new world. So in this modern context, most biblical scholars would say the closest relationship that we would have is one of employer and employee. It's not exactly the same, but it's probably the closest. A boss has authority over us. They just do. And we work to pay off our debt and to maintain um, you know, our living expenses and other things. So does that make us modern-day indentured servants? Maybe. But it's not too far off of um, what Paul was looking at in these verses. So what we just read about bond servants is that they're instructed to do their very best work regardless of whether people are looking or not. Paul says it doesn't matter. Don't even worry about if people are looking. It's, it's, it's irrelevant do everything that you do and do it all for God's glory. One of my high school jobs was working for um, East Bay, which is by the footlocker. And I worked in the warehouses and we used to take these orders and um, pick them off the shelves and put them together in boxes and ship them off and that's what we did. And there was warehouses all over the Wausau area and um, I remember uh, being in one of these really remote warehouses and some of my contemporary uh, other grunt workers, like I was a grunt worker, uh, just was in a warehouse. There's no supervisors around. There's nothing else going on. And these shelves would, you know, stack up super high. And there's people like laying on these shelves, just loafing around, kind of just napping, chilling. Some of them made like footballs out of these big pieces of tape and they were playing football. And um, I wasn't even a Christ follower at the time. but I, I remember distinctly thinking, every time I see that clock tick by, this behavior is costing the company money that they're getting nothing for in return. Why were they doing it? Because nobody was looking. They didn't care. And some people are sort of like that, you know, in the world. They only will put their best foot forward if um, people are watching. They're, they're doing it for eye service or people-pleasing. And there's a sort of showiness that they have when people are um, watching. They're like, well, I'm going to really work hard now and show you what I have. And they're sort of pretentious that way and they're kind of get ahead at all costs and oftentimes lack integrity but when we focus on who God made us to be and we work for his glory, our work ethic doesn't change whether people are watching or whether they're not. We do everything we can, the best we can for his glory. Occupational research actually says when we work that way, our job satisfaction, no matter what the job, is exponentially higher and our, our um, advancement opportunities are exponentially more. Paul ends a section in um, 4 by saying, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, because these masters may have kind of naturally assumed that based on their societal uh, position that they put themselves maybe in a different category, Paul instructs them to treat their doulos, their servants, the people working for them, treat them fairly and treat them justly. It's just one more indication that this is a different type of servanthood than maybe we've associated in our mind. In Exodus, it says if a master mistreated his servant in any way and caused them an injury, that servant could just go free with no debt to worry about anymore. Wouldn't that be nice? If we had a lousy boss, we could just have all of our mortgage and everything else paid off. That'd be pretty sweet. So, this passage uh, that we just looked at talks a lot about defined roles and relationships and how they all kind of fit together and how people conduct themselves. But as we kind of wrap up and talk about a couple of quick application points, um, let me also just look at this from a broader perspective as well. Because, um, you know, there are some of these trigger words, we get hung up on those, but I think there's a couple of things that are really, really good takeaways. The first is that there is no favoritism. There is not any favoritism. Like every organizational structure, people have roles and they have different duties and you know, and there's uh, org charts and all that. That's fine, it exists. But the fact of the matter is, is that no one person is more important or better or more significant than any other person. God has created them in his image and in Romans 2.11 he says, God shows no partiality. He shows no favoritism. That's the end of the the story on God's view of it. And that's, I think, why Paul, at the end of this Colossians passage, he says, the wrongdoer will be paid back for any wrong he has done, presumably within the context of these relationships. So husbands and wives, if you guys are like mistreating each other and you're like abusing what um, God's intent is here or parents and children, if you're not... Honoring each other the way that God has called you to or um, those serving and those being served, if you are not treating each other justly and fairly, you're going to be held accountable for that. And the reason you're going to be held accountable for that is because all people matter to God and God shows no favoritism. There is no partiality. Everybody deserves right treatment. To further erase these lines of partiality, God gave us um, Galatians Chapter 3, verses 28 to 29. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So it doesn't matter if you are tall or short or what race or what gender, or what age, or what socioeconomic class, it doesn't matter. If we are in Christ, that is how God looks at us. Do we have that relationship with Him through His Son? That ought to be the defining thing, not these other peripheral things that we often do. I just want to uh, illustrate it real quick this way because so many times um, and we have these really, really broad views and we, we read these and we think, you know, um, you know, you can kind of see on this, uh, this is really a wide beam, right? And we think, well, the Bible says that all women have to submit to all men. No, it doesn't. Well, children are inferior because they're young and they're you know, uh, not as smart as uh, adults. No, it doesn't. Well, if I make more money and if I have a better paying job, then you know, I'm more important than somebody else. No, I'm not. And so what God is saying is we need to narrow that focus down to narrow that Instead of defining these things by all of these broad categories, God is saying to wives, no, just come under the leadership of your husband. That's it. Children, your parents are the main influence in your life. Don't be influenced by every other sports player and every other adult out there. It doesn't make sense. And just because you're in a different economic position of of somebody else doesn't mean that you are somehow inferior to them in any way. And if you're in a higher one, you're not superior to them in any way. We need to narrow that focus. And most importantly, we look at this context of I'm getting my identity in all these different things all over the place, and, and I'm, I'm getting my identity from who people say I am, what my role is, and whether I'm doing good enough and how much money I make, and if I'm good enough, this or that. And God says, just stop that. Are you, and he just puts one focus in there. You're my child. You're made in my image. And I bought you with the blood of my son. Stop looking to all this stuff out there to try to fill that. I've got a purpose for your life. I've got a plan for who you are. Don't miss that. And that's what God is saying. He's like, just, just bring that in in your heart and in your mind. Just, just stop categorizing things and We do so much of that to ourselves, and and in so many ways, God just says, Stop and just remember who you are. The second uh, reality is that Jesus is the ultimate servant. Um, He took on the lowliest of positions in order to earn for us a heavenly position. If you get a chance sometime, would you guys read Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 6, or 3 to 6? It talks about the lowly position that Jesus took upon himself. And in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, it says, Have this mind among yourself, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, a slave. Being born in the likeness of man, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus himself took on that role. And in a spiritual context, when that atonement was complete and Jesus finished his work of dying on the cross for our sins, we then have this position of taking on all the roles of Colossians 3 in relationship to him. In Revelation 19, we, the church, all believers of all time are described as the bride of Christ at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We, all of us, are the bride of Christ. That's the description in Revelation 19. We also see Dozens of verses about us being children of God and God being our heavenly father. Really, really quickly in John 1, uh, 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's not all of this, it's this. We believed in his name and his work on the cross and we became children of God. And then finally, we get to live in joyful service to our good, just, and faithful master, our perfect master. And we get to do the work that he's called us to do. It's a privilege to do his work. Um, In Romans 6.22 and John 8, it talks all about the fact that we are once slaves. We were slaves to sin. We couldn't stop sinning. We couldn't stop doing things for sin. But ultimately, Jesus paid that price, freed us from the shackles of sin, and now we get to serve him. So no matter what, Uh, we've thought of these concepts in the past, no matter what our preconceived ideas were of these terms or these relationships, my prayer is that tonight would have been at least a little bit of a window into understanding how God sees these relationships and how it can ultimately point us to finding our identity in him and to working those things out in our relationships laterally and ultimately that it's the way that we relate to him because there is no greater joy, there is no greater satisfaction than living our life in fellowship with him. So, um, would you guys just bow with me as we pray? And we're kind of running over, but then we're going to um, have Sam come up and talk about small groups. God, we just um, know that these passages can be so difficult, and uh, it's so hard to unpack these in just a short amount of time, but yet, Lord, we can trust your word, and we know that you are faithful to it and that the things that it says can be trusted even if it's not things that we immediately understand. Help us to know God that you have an unbelievable plan for our lives and to stop looking laterally for what we should only find vertically. God, thank you for what Paul says is that ultimately it is the Lord Jesus that we are serving. Help us to be reminded of that in all of our relationships and help us to be reminded that as we go about our work and our Um, relationships and our families, that we do have the privilege and the joy of serving you and making you known. So thank you again for our night. Bless the rest of our time and our small groups as well. In Jesus' name, amen.